Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the bizarre saga of Juniper may finally be coming to a conclusion. Details about Sloth, the SSL vulnerability that also affects IPsec and SSH, the attack on the Ukrainian power grid made possible by malware, feedback and questions with a theme, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everybody, and welcome to TechSnap. This is Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on January 14th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, Alan. So, hold on a second. Is there a hole in the... Oh, no, there's a light out in the back there in the Tetris? No, that's a hole. You are... Have you ever played Tetris? That happens. You are fancy. You are getting fancy with the Tetris Although the physics of that purple one there, uh, actually not falling down... It's precarious. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, those those blocks don't have a high friction coefficient. So there are people listening that have only ever listened to the TechSnap program. You might not know that Alan has a Tetris lamp behind him that seems to change shape almost every episode. Hmm. How many configurations are there? Every episode. Are there? I, I, yeah. Half the show prep is yeah, to come no. up with the... <laughs> I don't even... I've actually thought as a feedback thing or yeah. something. If New I built a web app that let you construct the things, yeah. could, people could like submit and vote on them and then we decide what it would be for the show. Oh, Al, because you have so much time to make a web app like that. I know. <laughs> Somebody should make one and send it in as feedback. That would be a classic TechSnap moment. Uh, all right. Well, we have uh, a story that is the story that keeps on giving this week. And it's kind of hits home, close to home for me because I used to deploy some Juniper gear there's still more questions about these Juniper devices. Um, where are we at with the story, Alan? Uh, right. So Juniper Networks announced uh, late on Friday of last week that they will remove the suspicious dual ECDRBG uh, random number generator from the ScreenOS operating system entirely. Uh, the networking giant said it will not uh, only remove dual EC, but also get rid of the ANSI X9.31 uh, RNG that... Uh, because of a bug in their code wasn't actually being used anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, and the next uh, the next upcoming release that will be the first half of this year at some point will uh, replace both of those with a known good random number generator. I think the one they use in JunoS, which is the FreeBSD-based product. Uh, but anyway, they will be replacing both bad random number generator thingies with a good one instead. That seems like a, a pretty good thing. Yes. And is, Although questions still remain how it got in there in the first place. And uh, is this also the stuff that touched on the contribution by the NSA to uh, to the stand? Well, the, the, the NSA wrote the dual, dual EC. EC. Okay. I was making sure. I just want to make sure I was tracking from the story. I think it was like a week or two, week, three weeks ago we yes. might have covered. Uh, also <laughs> questions uh, about some strange coding decisions that led to the uh, ANSI X9.31 algorithm actually being subtly broken. Um so basically, in old versions of JunoS, or sorry, old versions of ScreenOS, okay. um, they used the ANSI X931 random number thingy. Uh, then, in I think version 6.2 or something, they added the dual EC thing uh, that the NSA had come up with. Okay. Uh, and they used that within feed into the ANSI X9 thing. But when they were making the changes, one of the variables was global, not only in scope inside the for loop. 
And so it caused, after the first time, the random number generator didn't do anything. So instead of taking the input from dual EC, which could have a back door, and mixing it up before using it, it would cause it to not mix it up, right? Because they thought it already had done the 32 loops that it needed to do instead of not. <laughs> um, so it's not clear how that happened. <laughs> um, but at last week's Real World Crypto Conference, which is at, I think, Stanford University, okay. uh, a team of crypto experts presented a number of releva- uh, revelations about this, including news that uh, Juniper's use of dual EC dates to 2009 or maybe even 2008, uh, but at least a year after uh, Dan Shamao and Niels Ferguson's landmark presentation at the crypto conference, where they first said that dual EC uh, had been backdoored by the NSA. Yeah, okay. Although, if you've ever looked at a company making an appliance like this, they were probably you know, working on the dual EC version to ship it years before the research happened, right? Yeah. Came yeah, out. yeah, yeah, yep. It takes a while for a change to actually filter out into a version. Hmm. Uh, but, anyway, uh, basically they said uh, Shumau and Ferguson's work showed that not only is dual EC slow compared to other pseudo-random number generators, it also contains a bias that the NSA could exploit. Uh, Stephen Checkaway, uh, who's an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Illinois at Chicago, told ThreatPost that he and his colleagues uh, on this investigation looked at dozens of versions of NetScreen and learned that the ANSI X931 was used exclusively until ScreenOS 6.2 when Juniper added the dual EC uh, part of it. It also changed the size of the nouns used by ANSI X9 uh, from what 20 bytes that it had been to 32 bytes. Uh, and that 32 bytes is uh, what, how much you need from dual EC to figure out the state if you know the back door. Mm, okay. Whereas if they just said 20, it would have taken a lot more work to decrypt traffic. Mm. They say, uh, at the same time, Juniper introduced what was a bizarre bug uh, that caused the ANSI generator to never be used and instead just use the output of dual EC. They made all of these changes in the same version update. It's very bizarre. I've never seen anything like this uh, where they've gone from something that was working and written in a standard manner to something that was very strange like this. Uh, (laughs) It's bizarre. (laughs) uh, It's the bug that enabled another attack uh, to replace the dual EC constant with a different one uh, thought to belong to the NSA. So, you know, the fact that Juniper started using dual EC was one problem, but it led to down the road somebody switched the constant out so that they could monitor the traffic. Uh, the scenario harkens back to the documents leaked by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, in particular NSA's Project Bullrun, which explains the NSA's subversion of dual EC and eventually the revelation that RSA security was allegedly paid $10 million by the NSA to use the algorithm in their products. Uh, so here's like a little, uh, here's a little help you out with the development fund kind of thing. Well, we're not saying that's what happened, but... So somebody stuck this code to Juniper. They don't know if that was, you know, one person who maybe was getting paid by the NSA, uh, or if it was, you know, Juniper overall being paid by the NSA, or how it happened. Hmm. You know, at one point, I know a lot of products were looking at using dual EC because it was the NIST standard, and the, you know, the government was going to require any government hardware support dual EC. But uh, so you know, Juniper's original reasons for using dual EC might have been legitimate. Yeah. Okay. You know, they want to sell lots of routers to the government. Hmm. Uh, 
But anyway, now the SSH backdoor, on the other hand, was clearly malicious, and there was no way you could Thank say you. that wasn't Thank you. Yeah. purpose. So. Yeah, that, def that definitely feels to be the case. Uh, why do you say definitely, though? Uh, well, be in that case, because you, you don't accidentally have a static password that looks like a chunk of assembly, so it's not obvious when you're looking at the code, right? Okay. Yeah, I guess the fact that they somebody tried to obscure did it. That on, yeah. Somebody definitely did that on yeah. purpose. I'm not yeah. saying Juniper did. Uh, you know. Doesn't seem like the kind of thing somebody just builds in, though, on a whim. Yeah. So, uh, right. Uh, in the end, I think... Uh, Don't you think it's fascinating? Here we are a couple of years and change or whatever after Snowden, and we are still sort of unraveling some of the things, the, some of the moves treasure. the NSA made a decade ago to to sort of lay the groundwork for this a level of surveillance. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been working on this. Well, the security expert's been warning us about that the whole time. We just weren't. We're like, oh, ah, you're paranoid. Conspiracy yeah. theorists. <laughs> um, you know, even paranoids have enemies, they say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're not paranoid if they are actually out to get you. But so in this case, you know, uh, the fact that Juniper made this public makes it seem, or maybe that's just what they want, but it makes it seem like they were not in on this. Well, they, and they have to try to regain customer trust because of the type of devices they're selling to the market. And they and also so I have... Think in particular, being transparent about it is part of their... Mm -hmm. Including including a huge market outside the U.S., which is, this is what really hurts. Well, yes. Uh, I don't have it handy, but uh, the best illustration of all of this is it's a little network diagram. You know, you got the cloud over here, that's the internet, and then uh, four firewalls, and then the computer, or your, the the kind of pie wedge looking symbol that they use for a network. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's got the four firewalls and it's like, well, you want this brand of firewall to protect you against Chinese exploits, this brand of firewall to protect you against Israeli exploits, this one for Russian and this one for US. Wow. That's... Right. So, so you buy a, a firewall from Russia to protect you against American exploits and you buy a firewall from US to protect you against the Chinese ones and you buy a Chinese one to protect you against the Israeli one. Wow, that's something. Something like that so that, uh, you know, because wherever you're buying the router from, it probably doesn't protect you against that government, right? <laughs> well, uh, uh, any other thoughts on that story, Alan? <laughs> that is the Juniper uh, saga. Hopefully we'll is, find out more. But, uh, it's been fascinating to follow this Juniper story for a few weeks now. I yeah. mean, this is it's been going on for more than a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, well, let me tell you about something else that's awesome. That's DigitalOcean. Use our promo code SNAPOcean at DigitalOcean to give us credit and to get yourself a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a great way to set, to set up and spin up your own rig up in the cloud in just seconds. Less than 55 seconds, you're going to have your own rig. And the pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That gives you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And they got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, Toronto... You can go hang out with Alan. Yeah, actually, I gotta look at moving mine. Yeah, uh, why not? I, I use uh, DigitalOcean as my backup mail server because that was awesome. Yeah, uh, you know, for yeah. five dollars you can't beat a backup mail server. No, everybody uh, you should know. have backup mail server. Yeah. It only costs five dollars. Or you know, like a, a backup, uh, just a, a backup server, like using SyncThing mm. to backup or something like that yep. to a, a system offsite using revisions. And there are so many things you can do with the DigitalOcean droplet. They got one-click yep. deployments. You can deploy FreeBSD, all the popular Linux eyes, all available at DigitalOcean with a great interface and a straightforward API to really take advantage of all of those features in, in pretty much a setting, any setting you want, whether it be some of the great code that's already been written in open source, an app for your phone, or integrating it with your own project. 
is really nice. The pricing is really straightforward. They even have hourly pricing available too. It's very simple, yep. very Plus scalable. Plus they have uh, flowing IPs now, so you can do high availability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Making you yep. look reliable Mail and professional. Mail servers kind of have that already built into the protocol, but for you know a website, you need something that can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, check them out over at DigitalOcean.com. And then once you get signed up, they've also got really great tutorials available. Really great ones. Like this. They have, they're writing more and more for Let's Encrypt, uh, Docker Compose on CentOS, WordPress on Ubuntu, Prometheus for monitoring, and then also they spotlight some projects to take advantage of their awesome API. Mm-hmm. Look at this one. How to fix OpenSSH's client bug CVE-0216-077 and CVE-0216-0778. Yeah, we literally already have a tutorial yeah. for the SSH bug we talked about and. Because yeah. it's pre-recorded, that came out this morning. Yeah, they've only had a couple of hours. They, they, they wrote this. This was posted five hours ago. I mean, they are on top of it. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. The pricing, the cool interface, the great locations, and the fast servers are just the tip, the tip, the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip over at DigitalOcean.com. Then find out everything else underneath that when you go build your own droplet. It's really cool. Use our promo code SnapOcean to support the show and get a ten dollar credit. And a thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Nice, you guys. Uh, nice. Uh, somebody in the uh, chat room did find that uh, graphic. Yes, that it, was Coop. Coop is awesome. Yeah, so Coop, uh, of course, my IRC is not currently working, but he did find the tweet. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> why it, and the tweet is why we need layered security. That's, uh, that's a good one. Uh, all right, Alan. So let's uh, shift gears, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll try to grab that link and throw it in the show notes if people want to check it out. I just threw it in the show notes. Oh, look at you. Good guy. You know what? Then if you did that, I could actually show it on I could show it on yes. screen, too. You should you be able to pull it up. Pull it up, yeah. Uh, so this is the network diagram that Alan was uh, mentioning about picking the firewall based on who you need sec- who you need security from. Well, in this case, it's using all the firewalls. Yes, yeah, you, so you right, can you protect from everybody. You way Chinese <laughs> firewall to protect you against U.S. backdoors. Uh, Juniper firewall to protect you against Chinese backdoors. A Cisco firewall to protect you against Israeli backdoors. And a checkpoint firewall to protect you against Russian backdoors. Right. Sounds about right to me, Alan. Sounds about what could go wrong. Well, that, that should work real well, real nice and smooth. What could be the issue? Yes. Hey, you know what else is nice and smooth? Sloth. <laughs> Tell me about Sloth, the latest SSL TLS vulnerability. I bet it's, I, when, you got a, when you got a name like Sloth, something tells me it's, it's a good one. Yes. So Sloth is the latest uh, SSL slash TLS vulnerability. Uh, but it also affects IPsec and SSH. Dun, dun, dun. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. So um, if you thought MD5 was banished from HTTPS encryption, you'd be wrong. Right? MD5 is rather old, and, and we've seen lots of attacks against it to be able to generate uh, collisions and make fake certificates and so on. So you, know, you haven't been allowed to make a new HTTPS certificate with it in a while, uh, but it's still used in certain other things. And uh, an interesting thing is that uh, in TLS version 1.2, it went from being uh, you had the uh, you could only use it in combination with the SHA one or something, using both of them for some reason. Okay. Uh, but in the later version, they basically allowed you to use individual protocols, but they didn't take MD5 off the list, so you can cause it to actually use only MD5, and that would be bad. Anyway, uh, so it says it turns out that the fatal weak uh, or fatally weak cryptographic hashing function, along with its slightly stronger uh, but still weak cousin, uh, SSH1, uh, are still widely used in the transport layer security protocol that underpins HTTPS. Now, researchers have devised a series of attacks 
that exploit the weakness uh, to break or degrade key uh, protections provided not only by HTTPS, but also other encryption methods like IPsec and SSH. Uh, the attack, they're dubbing it SLOTH, which stands for um, Security Loss from Obsolete and Truncated Transcript Hashes. Ugh. The name uh, is also not so subtle rebuke of the collective laziness of the community that maintains uh, critical security regimes uh, forming a cornerstone of internet security. Hey and if the uh, criticism seems harsh, consider this. MD5-based signatures were int- weren't introduced into TLS until version 1.2, uh, which was released in 2008. Uh, that was the same year researchers uh, exploited cryptographic weaknesses in MD5 to allow them to spoof a valid HTTPS certificate authority uh, for any domain that they wanted. Although SHA-1 is considerably more resistant to so-called cryptographic collision attacks, it too is considered at least theoretically broken. So no one's actually done it yet, but Hmm. the way to do it exists. Uh, MD5 signatures were uh, subsequently banned in TLS certificates, uh, but not in some other parts of the protocol. Uh, so notably, we have found a number of unsafe uses of MD5 in various internet protocols, yielding exploitable chosen prefix and generic collision attacks. <sighs> the researchers wrote in uh, their technical paper, which came out Wednesday at the Real World Cryptography Conference. We also found several unsafe uses of SHA-1 that will become dangerous when more efficient collision-finding algorithms for SHA-1 are discovered. So, you know, we should start replacing those now so that it's not a big deal when it happens. Mm-hmm. The most practical sloth attack uh, breaks what's known as TLS client uh, authentication. So normally, uh, the idea with SSL is, you know, you go to your bank's website and they send you uh, their certificate, which says some third party has verified that we're actually this bank and you trust that third party because it's pre-built into your browser, right? And that's how you are sure that you're not talking to a bad, uh, a Russian cyber criminal trying to pretend to be your bank. Um, but it can also work in the other way, or uh, both ways. So some systems like OpenVPN, but also uh, software like, uh, they have a list here, but even the billing system at Scale Engine actually, I use this so that I can authenticate with a certificate instead of a password, because it's basically like having an SSH key for a website instead of my password, uh, or in addition to do multi-factor. Uh, anyway. They say some banks, corporate websites, and other security-conscious organizations rely on this to ensure that an end user is authorized to connect to the website or VPN, right? So, you know, we use SSL so your bank can verify to you that you or that they are really your bank. But if you're connecting to an open VPN or you're connecting to uh, your corporate billing system or something, you can also use a certificate to prove that you are who you say you are. Uh, but this sloth attack allows you to spoof that. It works largely the same way as TLS server authentication, except that the end user proves who they are to the server. Hmm. And that's how OpenVPN does authentication if you set it up with, uh, for multiple users, uh, which is probably how most people have their OpenVPN set up. Yeah. Uh, when both the end user and the server support RSA-MD5 signatures for client authentication, Sloth makes it possible for an adversary to impersonate the end user as long as the end user first visits and authenticates itself to a site controlled by the attacker. Now, it depends how your browser is configured, whether it will automatically send certificates you have to the website uh, or if it will ask you which one hmm. and a couple things, depending mm-hmm. how you're configured. But, yeah, if they can 
get your browser to go to their website and present your certificate a bunch of times, then they can uh, use that information to be able to spoof your certificate and pretend to be you where you would be authenticated. The so-called credential forwarding attack is carried out by sending carefully crafted messages to both the end user and the legitimate server. To impersonate the end user, the attacker must uh, complete some 2 to the power of 39, or about 5.75 billion hash computations, an undertaking that requires about an hour using a powerful computer workstation with 48 cores. Well, okay. Or, um, I think that would take 20 minutes with a video card. Oh, okay, yeah, that's much more reasonable. MD5... On OCO Anyway, uh, yes, here it is. So, plain MD5 on a computer with a single AMD HD 7970 can do 8.5 million hashes per second. So, that would take about a thousand seconds to do the, uh, the, work you need to spoof this uh, or if you have uh, a machine with eight titan x's in it then it can do 115 million per second or uh, if you have eight amd uh, r9 290x's then it can do 92 million per second so uh, even with sha1 right if you have just one video card in a computer uh you can do 3 million SHA-1s per second. If you have the uh, 8 video cards, you can do between 30 and 37 million per second. So yeah, it'll, it'll only take, uh, you know, half an hour less to... On a GPU? Yeah. Yeah. Or like small number of minutes. That's sort of disconcerting. Like 15 minutes. That makes it <laughs> yeah. much more approachable, you know. That's yeah. not a... <laughs> with one video card that you might have to do gaming with. You know, the ones where you get like 30 million or whatever are... Well, the AMD ones are actually gaming ones, but I think the uh, NVIDIA ones are science ones. But anyway. Uh, the impersonation attack is made possible by the susceptibility of MD5 to collision attacks in which the two different message inputs, uh, so basically two different inputs, come up with the same hash. Because MD5 is 128-bit function, cryptographers once expected to find a collision after computing 2 to the power of 64 computations. So when you try half of every possible thing, after that you will start finding collisions. Yeah. A phenomenon known as the birthday paradox reduces the number of bits of security for a given function by one half. Uh, weaknesses in MD5, however, reduce the complexity to just 2 to the power of 15, which is 32,768, for a collision, or 2 to the power of 39... Uh, for a more powerful chosen prefix attack, whereas both messages actually start with the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we've seen, we've talked about this before when it happened, uh, where you basically you have two different PDFs, and they okay. would start with like the same message, and then by messing with like a hidden or comment part in the middle, you could come up with two PDFs that say completely different things, but uh, have the exact same MD5 hash, so that you could, you know, get someone to sign one and then swip it out with a different one and it would hmm. have the same hash and hmm. it would look fine. Hmm. Like the, nothing changed. Hmm. Sneaky. Uh, yeah. Um, 
in which the attacker can choose different message inputs and add values that result in them having the same hash value. Uh, such an attack would be infeasible if MD5 hadn't been added to TLS 1.2 mm. in 2008. Mm. So after we already knew MD5 was bad, we added the option to use MD5 when we shouldn't have. <laughs> we don't ever learn, Alan. We don't ever learn. Slots can also be used to cryptographically impersonate servers, but the requirements are steep. An attacker uh, would first have to make an astronomically large number of connections to a server, then store the results to disk. If the attacker made 2 to the power of x connections, uh, it would then require making 2 to the power of 120 minus x computations. If the number of connections, uh, for example, was 2 to the power of 64, the attacker would require 2 to the power of 64 computations. Uh, the pre-computation requirements are high enough to be outside the capability of most attackers, but they remain feasible for government-sponsored adversaries or those uh, with similarly deep pockets. Uh, basically, you know, when you can build a system and run it at your house, they can do, you know, 38 million hmm. or 38 billion attempts per second. Uh, doesn't doesn't take so much. So the problem is actually going back one sec. The 5.75 billion. I think a video card might be able to do that in one second, the original one, which is crazy. Anyway. Here's what scares me is this is like a massively widespread problem. Um, not entirely. Uh, you can choose which things are used, and I don't think that many people actually support MD5. Uh, we have some stuff. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, so the researchers behind Sloth have uh, been working privately with the developers of vulnerable software to come good. up with a fix. Good. A partial list of protocols that have been identified includes TLS versions 1.1, 1.2, and 1.3. Uh, that last bit scares me. I thought they would have fixed that in 1.3, which is newer. Uh, Ike version 1 and 2 for IPsec and SSH version 2. Uh, vulnerable software includes OpenSSL, NSS, which is the uh, SSL library for Mozilla. Uh, Oracle Java, Bouncy Castle Java, and Polar SSL and Embed SSL, uh, among lots and lots of others. The security researchers cite an internet scan for security pitfalls that says that 32% of TLS servers support RSA-MD5. Uh, so right now it's kind of nation-state territory, or at least spend a lot of money on it. Uh, although you could get lucky if you just sat there and ran it for a while. Um, but in the end, hopefully, before it becomes more feasible by computers getting faster, we will, uh, and MD5 having more weaknesses discovered, we'll be able to uh, phase it out. Amen to that, Alan. Amen to that. Mm -hmm. Well, I really don't have much to add to it. I don't have much to contribute. It seems like at least this is manageable. They're working with the developers already as we, as we read this, so that's extremely good. So now it's just a matter of anybody who's actually enabled it to take whatever whatever um, resolutions are available to them. Huh. Okay. Well, for some reason, I feel like I every time we do a sh every time we do one of these stories, I have less and less faith in uh, in any of these things ever being fixed. Any other thoughts on that story, Alan? <laughs> um, you know, I don't mean to bring it down, but I was like, I see these things, and I think, boy, if, is, if it's uh, an institution that's yeah. using MD5, they're probably also not an institution that's staying very current. That is updating, pa installing patches, or following trends. Like, it seems like these people are the worst-case scenario, but I don't mean to stereotype. But it just seems like that's a bad one. All right. You know what? Let's shake it off. Let's shake it off. Let's just shake shake it off like Mariah Carey and Ting. Over, go, go to techsnap.ting.com and get your Mariah Carey on and shake it off. Ting is mobile that makes sense. No contracts. 
No mm-hmm. early termination fees. You just pay for what you use. Flat $6 for the Ting account. They have GSM and CDMA for you to choose from. Great customer service. A rocking control panel. All the features you'd expect. If you want to use tethering, you just turn it on. You just check the box in the operating system. Ting is totally cool with that. If you want to use Wi-Fi and save a whole bunch of money, you can do that as well. I had like I had like one of my lowest bills ever recently, and it was through the holidays because everybody's just a little Wi-Fi savvy. I really like that. Uh, also, for you cord cutters, they went they went through and did a roundup of the smart TVs that don't suck at CES for cord cutters, and the ones that were top of their list are actually the ones running Firefox OS. Uh, and you know the other nice thing about Firefox OS is the update for the latest Panasonic TVs. They're actually going to ship it to all of the old Firefox OS TVs too. They're already on the market. Uh, so Ting talks a little bit about that, which is really cool. And they also talk about getting more out of Google Now on their blog. So if you haven't visited the Ting blog in a little while, go get a little insight on the company. While you're over there, check out their devices. They just recently posted the Moto G, a great budget Android phone with a really good Android experience. $168, no contract, no early termination fee, unlocked, you own it. And then you just pay for what you use, $168 to get a third gen Moto G on Ting, that's a great deal. That's a great deal. You can start saving today by switching. If you're not sure how much you would save, they have a savings calculator on their website. Go to techsnap.ting.com, punch that how much would you save button, punch it with your fist, put your current usage in there, and they'll tell you. Check them out, techsnap.ting.com to support this show. Go look at their great services, and they have a great deal for the TechSnap audience. Techsnap.ting.com, and a big thank you to Ting. I am at scale right now, probably using the S out of my uh, Ting hotspot as we record this episode in the future. I am bringing my uh, Ting Netgear Zing with me, which gives me how much data I've used, how many devices, all my Wi-Fi settings right there on a touchscreen. I don't have to use any crappy web interface. I can just do it right there on the device. And I got it by going to techsnap.ting.com. Okay, so there's been an attack on, I guess, the Ukrainian power grid. Yes. that was maybe enabled by malware sneaking in there? What do we know, Alan? What are you learning at this time, as yes. they say? <laughs> Nobody says that to me. Anyway. No, no, but CNN um, says it all the time. So, yes, there was basically a cyber attack against the Ukrainian power grid uh, by fairly sophisticated attackers. So the attackers demonstrated planning, coordination, and the ability to use malware and possible direct remote access to blind system dispatchers, cause undesirable state changes to the distribution of electricity uh, and infrastructure, and attempt to delay the restoration by wiping SCADA servers after they caused the outage. Nice move. Uh, This attack consisted of at least three components. First, uh, the malware, then a denial of service attack on the phone system, and uh, the missing piece of evidence in the final cause of the impact. Uh, Current evidence and analysis indicates that the missing component was a direct interaction from the adversary and not the work of the malware. So in other words, the attack was enabled by a malware, but consisted of at least three distinct effects. So uh, original versions of the story uh, seem to suggest that the malware getting into the power plant is what caused the outages. And that's not it. it no, was the malware were, enabled They were purposely it. caused by people purposely turning the power off. Uh, they just managed to get into the network with the malware. With the malware, yeah, which is very typical. Right. That's what we would expect well, to see, it, really. Um, it, because the malware included something called, like, kill disk or something, they thought that just maybe the virus getting in there and killing the SCADA system was how they turned the power off. Uh, but the SCADA system is a control system. So, you know, if you don't turn the switch off, like the physical switch for the power, then um, 
if you turn off the computer that controls it doesn't turn the it switch, off, right? It doesn't turn the power off, right? So uh, that was either reporting error or not enough details. Not enough detail in the original. But from stuff. from like a but from like a theory standpoint, if you were going to have malware that say these had electronic switches, if you're going to write malware to actually go in and do this, it would have to be very specifically targeted malware. I mean, you'd have to essentially have well, the hardware this, this, you're writing for to even write the malware to begin with. Well, um, I mean, this, it'd be a massive task to actually have malware do this work, is what I'm saying. Well, while they're not, you know, pointing fingers, this is fairly obviously nation-state attack, uh, you know, right. and Ukraine maybe, is currently in conflict with another country that yeah. would benefit from turning their power off. Um, anyway, they say the cyber attack uh, was compromised or comprised of multiple elements, which included uh, denial of view to the system dispatchers and an attempt to deny customer calls that would have reported the power out. Uh, we assessed with high confidence that we were uh, coordinated attacks against multiple regional distribution uh, power companies. Some of these companies have been reported with names that I cannot possibly pronounce. Per Carpati Nundabogonagaro. That's not per Per Carpati Albaganero. <laughs> I don't know what else. Yeah, and Kivo Blednegaro. The exact timeline of which utilities were affected and the ordering is still unclear and is currently being analyzed, but we do know that the uh, one of the companies uh, provided public updates to its customers, shown uh, in the notes there, indicating that uh, an unauthorized intrusion that happened between 3.30 and 4.30 local time uh, disconnected 710 kilovolt substations and 23 35 kilovolt substations, leading to an outage for about 80,000 customers. So it appears that malware uh, got into the network onto the workstations at the power company, allowing the attackers to gain a foothold in the network and then move laterally around in that. Uh, they also used this foothold to deny operators at the power distribution system a correct view of what was happening. So you're at you're the power distribution guy, and you're sitting at your desk here, and you have this thing that's showing you how the power grid's running, and they spoofed it so it looked like it was fine. So as they started turning off these switching stations, as far as the operator is concerned, everything's working fine and nobody's having a problem. Uh, then they combine that with a denial of service attack against the phone system so that customers whose power was out couldn't call the power company to tell them the power is out. So the power company is still unaware that the power is actually out. Right? Because their view from the monitoring systems is being faked and their phone system is being denial of service. So they, their, their phones aren't ringing. <laughs> right. <laughs> <That's> uh, <not. laughs> yeah. uh, then the attackers used... a. Uh, the malware to interfere with the efforts to regain control of the computers in the SCADA systems. It sounded like they basically completely wiped the SCADA system so they were, you know, bricked. And so they couldn't be used to regain control. Uh, so from what's being reported, uh, ISC SANS has uh, managed to get the, they don't have exact timing, but they know that an adversary initiated an intrusion uh, into the production SCADA systems. They infected workstations and servers to disrupt the other stuff. Sure, makes uh, sense. They acted to blind the dispatchers so they wouldn't know the power system was being messed with. They acted to damage the SCADA system hosts, the servers and workstations themselves, so that uh, action would have that would delay the restoration and uh, introduce risk, especially uh, if the SCADA systems are essential to coordinated actions. So, on top of if you take out the controller, it means someone has to go to the site to physically turn it back on. You can't just do it remotely with the SCADA system. It also means that, you know, 
automated systems that are supposed to prevent the grid from failing don't kick in because the computer's broken, right? And Boy. also the action makes forensics more difficult. If you completely erase the SCADA system, you can't get its logs of how they got broken into, right? Um, and they flooded the call center to deny customers the ability to actually call in and report. And so the power company wasn't aware of what was actually happening at first. Although, um, yes, yeah, because of the way SCADA systems work, it is uh, almost a certainty that the attackers purposely opened the breakers to turn the power off and not that it happened just because they wiped the SCADA system. So just because they destroyed the computer doesn't mean destroying the computer took out the power. It was they took out the power, then destroyed the computer so you couldn't turn it back on. Yeah. Uh, luckily, the Ukrainian power grid does not rely heavily on SCADA. Uh, they use it mostly as a convenience to avoid having to go to the substations to do stuff and increase response time and so on. Um, other more automated power grids, like maybe, I don't know, the ones in this country or your country, yeah. uh, would have a harder time actually getting the power back on with the, without having access to the SCADA systems. You know, in Ukraine, they're fairly new and they haven't kind of switched everything over to it. But over here, if they nuked the SCADA systems in the same way, it, we wouldn't have got the power back on in a couple of hours. So that's something to be wary of, right? Yeah, that's a good trick. They say, uh, we are very interested in helping power companies learn as much as they can from this real-world incident. We would like to note that the uh, competent action by the Ukrainian utility personnel in responding to the attack and restoring power uh, or restoring their power system. As a community, the power industry is dedicated to keeping the lights on. Uh, what is now true is that a coordinated cyber attack consisting of multiple elements is one of the expected hazards they may face. We need to learn, uh, learn from and prepare ourselves to detect, respond, and restore from such events in the future. Yeah, at least, at minimum. Yeah. Uh, and then I have an uh, interesting... When we uh, were talked about power plants being targeted in the future, or uh, in the, when we talked about it a while ago, uh, I think it was the head of the Homeland Security or something was like, currently the biggest threat to our power subsystem is squirrels. And so uh, actually this ourenergypolicy.org uh, has this awesome Google map showing power disruptions all over the Northeast. And all the ones with the little acorn symbol are caused by squirrels. <laughs> As you can see, predominantly, the biggest threat to our power grid is squirrels. But the attack from, you know, coordinated attackers like this can no longer be dismissed as, don't worry about it, squirrels are a much bigger issue. Uh, <laughs> while squirrels are still an issue, this is kind of a big deal now. The squirrel hacked. I was trying to think of like a squirrel malware name. Cybersquirrel1.com. Is that a thing? Yes. And wow, that's a dense map. That's a lot of squirrels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, all right. Even have reporting in Europe. <clears throat> so Apparently, you, only one of the things that ever happened in Germany was a squirrel. So there's Apparently, no, Germany uh, has well-trained squirrels that don't attack the power grid. Are you telling me that we don't have uh, an article rife with speculation about the nation state behind it? I mean, I'm not. This is normally we're getting uh, like a good. Uh, well, you know, because it happened in the Ukraine. You're thinking Russia. Yeah. 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 That would be the that would be the go-to, right? Yeah. Um, well, right. there's the ones that have the most to gain. Right? What, what, find, what I find interesting about it is Keep it out. is something that they have been warning about happening in the U.S. like. 
all the time. I, I see reports on CNN, they're like, it would just take a few attacks on the power grid. And like, you know, they'll have high tech, high tech tech sounds and all that, boom, 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 move around and then show the power grid and they're constantly talking about it. And then here we actually see it happening in Ukraine. Uh, and interesting too, as, as you noted, that the story initially came out as malware caused it, and then it's really well malware facilitated it is more of probably the accurate way to say it, is malware facilitated the attackers getting in. Yes. Um, but, you know, when they target the SCADA system and so on, it's all of a sudden it's not the fact that, you know, the guy at the power station managed to get some run-of-the-mill malware on his computer, right? This is kind of different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it's a, it's it, I, isn't the, the operators at the power plant surfing porn and getting malware? That's, no, no, no. That's a threat vector. You know, there's a history, there's a rich history behind the creation of that malware that would be fascinating to know one day. I hope some of these stories come out in books or something about the teams that had to work on these malware and how they pulled it off and all the things that I'm, they really are probably feats of amazing engineering that they do. Speaking mm -hmm. of feats of amazing engineering, our friends over I at see. IX Systems are feats. And some amazing engineers themselves. They have uh, all kinds of rigs for you, from like something for the small business or home office all the way up to petabyte rigs to power amazing projects. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap is where you go to land to learn more. Check them out at IX Systems. They have a great blog. In fact, uh, if, I, if I'm correct, Alan, is the, uh, is the contest still going for uh, the uh, hashtag mission complete best stories? Is that still yes, a thing? Yes, that's still a thing. So uh, check that out. Uh, we have uh, November's up on the um, the blog for IX Systems mm -hmm. right now, which is pretty cool. You know, you get uh, a free uh, Amazon gift card and a T-shirt is what uh, yep. Chris Amos won. Yep. And, uh, you know, I uh, had the interesting experience. Just uh, got another sales quote from IX. Something different this time. I needed a machine that could transcode video very fast. So I needed a very specific type of Xeon CPU that has the GPU built in. Mm. Uh, or as an alternative, a bigger server that could fit a couple of like big video cards in it. Right. And so, and, you, uh, which route are you going? Oh, you got I different ones. I haven't decided yet. Oh, okay. So I've got okay. quotes for like a small one U E three. Yeah. Like a twelve seventy five V five. And so it's the a, latest uh, high end stuff. Um, and then we would use the Intel GPU built in mm -hmm. uh, to do quick sync. Or the other one where we buy like the uh, NVIDIA Kepler uh, video cards and do the offloading there. So that one's actually like a giant for you so it can fit the full-size video cards. Yeah. Uh, and has like, you know, this typical dual E5 heavy processors. Or as an alternative, we could just brute force. What would it cost to build a regular CPU? like one or two year one with two giant E5s, uh -huh. like 2680s? which are like 14 cores each at 2.5 gigahertz. Yeah. That's a really interesting experiment. Yeah. You're not sure which way you're going to go yet, huh? I'm not sure which way, but uh, they were able to, you know, spec out the machines exactly how I needed. You know, it's like, and because we're transcoding video, we're going to need really fast network connections. So, you know, we need to have at least this many 10 gigabit ports and optionally maybe some extra one gigabit ports so that we don't use up all the ports and so on. And uh, so we can separate the networks and keep all the, traffic that doesn't need to be on the 10 gig network off of it to keep the tech smart and gig free smart uh but you know basically very different than i normally buy from my ex where i'm just like uh give me as many hard drives as you can in a box <laughs> now it's like uh all i need is like two one terabyte drives and some s and a pair of ssds for uh to do dvr uh where we would you know you'd be able to rewind the live stream up to half an hour Ooh, so we need to cool. cache that on ssds uh 
It's yeah, I haven't got a quote for a system with only two terabytes of storage in a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they were able to quickly and accurately give me, you know, it's like, well, you can have this option or you can have this one where it's a bigger case uh, to fit the video cards or you can get this with a bigger CPU. That's cool and, that you can be like all nuanced yeah. like that. I like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, check them out, ixsystems.com. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to give us support for your visit and also to get their excellent mm-hmm. buying guide, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Just do it once and do it right with iX Systems. I think that's the way to go. You know, uh, right now I'm probably down at scale, so be sure to check out the Jupiter Broadcasting website for all kinds of content from Scale 14, the Southern California Linux Expo, going from January 21st to the 24th. Uh, and on the 22nd, we're going to have a meetup, so you can find out more about that at meetup.com slash Broadcasting. I would love to see you there. We're probably going to do a lunch a little bit after Corey Doctorow's keynote. We'll go out, get everybody, because there's no food facilities at the Pasadena Convention Center, I'm told. So we'll gather up our crew, and we'll go find some lunch, and have a great geek meetup. So meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for details about that. And check out Linux Action Show and Linux Unplugged, uh, probably in the next couple of episodes, for our scale coverage. All right, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB website or starting a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email this week comes in from Scott, and he wants to pick the right CPU for PFSense. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. I just got a chassis from my home network and was planning on building my own PFSense box. I was wondering how you can determine how much computer power slash cores are required. I know it's kind of a complex question that depends on how many extra features you're using on PFSense, but I figure there's probably a ballpark way to determine what you need for a base for each speed connection. I currently have a 2525 connection, but plan to upgrade once better speed options come in. That doesn't at least rake you over the coals. I also have about four users and about 15 devices, but most of the traffic on those devices is internal, so it really shouldn't be hitting layer three all that often. I also would like to mess around with extra security features that PF offers. Thanks, Scott. So yeah, for under a gigabit of traffic, pretty much any CPU will be fine. Um, so then you you know power might be a consideration stuff. Uh, um, if you're looking at building a server yourself, then you're probably you know looking at a standard PC components. So uh, you know a low end i3 or something. I guess you can look at the Celerons of Pentiums, but you know the low end i3s are usually not that much more and so much better. Um, you know, once you get up to trying to push a lot of packets, uh, especially very small packets and so on, you can start to be a limit on CPU. But you know, if you're only routing a gigabit, you're pretty much fine. So you think it's like even if he's doing do like, like gigabit, if he's doing like packet capture, maybe he's doing right N-top. now. If you're going to start trying to do squid and ntop and and suricata and so on, then you're going to want more CPU, especially if you're going to be like virus scanning files as they go through, and so on. So it depends how much that you're going to do. Uh, but even then, you know, a regular i3 is yeah, you know, 3 yeah, I plus mean, gigahertz in two cores. Yeah. If you really want to push it, go with an i5 so you get four cores. But I would say I would say i3 or i5 processors, fine. Yeah. Uh, an i3 is probably slightly lower power. Uh, you can compare them at arc, ark.intel.com, and you can put up a couple side by side. Oh, uh, nice. And the best is just watch for the, the power usage. Uh, you know, the number of watts it's going to draw, and you probably want the smaller one. Um, but it makes it very easy to compare the number of cores, the number of gigahertz, and so on to kind of pick. Uh, 
and it also has the approximate price. Uh, although the prices on the art.intel.com site are for like a crate of a thousand of them. And so those won't, you know, that's not what you're going to pay when you go to the store. But it gives you a uh, number to tell how much more this processor is than that processor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. That makes um, sense. But yeah, an i3 is probably going to be able to do anything you want to do at home with your connection that's, you know, only 25, 25, or even if it's 100 and 100, you know. I I used an old Pentium 3 until I got over a gigabit, and mostly the change there was just that I needed, it didn't have, the, the whole machine didn't have gigabit network cards in it. Now we have a theme. Alex writes in with our next question. He says, I want some top five PFSense newbie tests. Uh, so he says, longtime listener of the show here. After listening to Alan talk so long about the superiority, I mean, I'm sorry, the benefits of BSD, I finally took the plunge and purchased a PFSense kit for my home. My ISP is BT, because he's English, and I received their fiber to the cabinet service to to get an unmetered 40 down, 10 up connection. My question is, as a home user who's experienced with Linux, but not so much with PFSense, what are your top five, you must absolutely do these things first, newbie tips? I'm looking for some router level ad blocking, maybe run a TFTP from a box? Uh, if that's possible. And finally, is it worth running a local DNS server? I'm already using the VPN and R, or RRD graph functionality, and I really like it. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Ionic Badger. Uh, so, yeah, the ad blocking, I think, is just like a plugin, so you won't even have to go outside the web interface to do that. Uh, and they also have security programs like Suricata and so on. Uh, but, yeah, ad blocking, I imagine somebody's already got a thing set up for that, and you just got to do it. Um, running your own DNS server, you could. Uh, no, I, I say I yes. PFSense is just forwarding, or is it caching already? Yeah, it does cache. Might I yeah. think PFSense might already be doing that. For yeah, you. it probably Although is. Although, if you actually want to run your own domains off of it, then that's a little bit different. But yeah, you can do that. Uh, I don't know how PF blocker, s- by the way, is the uh, ad blocker. Ah, yes, yeah. PF blocker. There's something to Google for the TFTP thing. I don't. No, because PFSense is designed to be an appliance, it does not that easy to do too many custom things on it, uh, which is really the only reason my my why my router here is vanilla FreeBSD, because I wanted to be able to do mm-hmm. a bunch of weird things like run some beehives and so on. Did you mention Suricata already? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, which is which is like a IDS or IPS type type. Yeah. Uh, 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 Darkstat is uh, or bandwidth D to monitor uh, mm-hmm. network stats would be good. Um, I used uh, Darkstat a lot when I had uh, when my ISP first introduced bandwidth caps at seventy five gigs a month. That was a big issue. For Yikes! Me. Yeah. Uh, also, I love Ntop. Love Ntop. I just feel like it gives me such an interesting snapshot of what my network is actually talking about. But really, with PSN, as far as have to do, there's pretty much nothing. It's all good out of the box. Yeah. Uh, but as far as you know, you want to do interesting things with it. Then there's lots. You Check, I mean, these are the obvious plugin things and f- look for things that it are takes. It also it also takes care of like you know syncing to NTP. So make sure your clock's right. Make sure you like the way it's logging. If there's any alerting you need to set up, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really you're gonna have a good time, Alex. You're gonna have a good yeah. time. All right, one more PFSense question to round out the theme here. Goran writes in, Hello, Chris and Alan. Happy New Year, and I wish both of you success in the upcoming year with mini Linux and BSD cons. This time, I have a PFSense question for Alan. I have a PFSense firewall at home, and I wonder if there's a way to use free Wi-Fi hotspots that I can connect to from within PFSense so I can have internet access when my primary ISP goes down. I suppose I need to add Wi-Fi adapter to PFSense, but since I have never done such a thing, I wonder if it's even possible, or if it's too complicated to implement. If not, how about using 3G or 4G modems in PFSense? Thanks for the wisdom. Keep the shows coming. 
there are guys on PFSense to do what's called dual WAN, where you basically have two internet connections. Uh, and I suppose you could do that. I don't know if like the GUI in PFSense really has anything for connecting to another Wi-Fi, but it might. I and don't it know. Does, basically, combining that with the regular, um, you know, dual WAN type setup, and then you basically can have that second internet connection to fail over to. Um, and yeah, since you don't care, you know, when your internet goes out, you're not going to be worried about your already established connections. You just want any fresh ones to be able to go over the other route until your internet comes back. Uh, so dual WAN is definitely a popular topic with PFSense. So if you look in their forums and so on, they'll have lots of information about it. Um, the uh, If it's not very easy to make it connect to Wi-Fi, you can usually get... Uh, like I bought these old Japanese things. It basically has an Ethernet port that you would plug into an extra card on the PFSense, and then it connects to the Wi-Fi, and it would provide you a wired connection to your neighbor's Wi-Fi <laughs> uh, to use uh, for your PFSense. Although, in my experience, if my cable went out, my neighbor's was out too, and so Wi-Fi but didn't that, help much. But that would be an interesting... So what you're really doing is you're bringing Wi-Fi in over an Ethernet connection, not even worrying yeah. about Wi-Fi at the firewall level because it just thinks it's another Ethernet, Ethernet. interface. Yeah. That's a good idea. Uh, the main advantage to that is you, know, you don't have to worry about finding a Wi-Fi adapter with the driver that works because Ethernet yeah. just works. And you could do, and a lot of 3G, hot, 3G, 4G hotspots, you could connect to those with that thing and use mm-hmm. that as your backup. And then, yep. uh, do you know the software name off the top of the, off your head on, I guess it would probably be different for PFSense that manages the failover. Uh, uh, well, it's just called dual WAN. It, like, it's not a software. It's oh, okay. just a feature, right? Oh, okay. Uh, no, that's not. Uh, I would love to have that here. I would love to do that here at the studio. Mm-hmm. Maybe with like Comcast as the primary because it's the fastest, and then like DSL as the backup. Or you know, it's a rover. For a DSL connection, you don't ever use. You know that? Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's why three G would be nice because we already have. We're already paying for that data connection. Right, and you would only use data on it when. Yeah. But if this happens in a show, you're streaming. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of. It'd have to be a calculated decision for sure, but it would be very nice to have that option. Yep. Hendrick writes in with our last bit of feedback. He says, hey, Chris and Alan, a year ago I sent an, e- an email in about a security system for web applications that I'm look- working on. Today I released version two of that system. I'd be glad if you could take a look. Maybe it's something that the viewers would be interested in. It's at shadowed, or that's S-H-D-O-W-D dot Z-E-Q-C-U-R-E dot org. Secure is spelled with a Z. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Keep up the work. So I did take a look Shadow at it. Shadow D. Shadow D at Secure with spelled with a Z. Yes, thank you. It's easier said that way. Uh, it's a kind of a neat site, Alan. And it's uh, I'll pull it up here on the uh, on the video version. Uh, Shadow Demon is a is a collection of tools to detect, record, and prevent attacks on web applications. Technically speaking, Shadow Demon is a web application firewall that intercepts requests and filters out malicious parameters. It's a modular mm-hmm. system that separates web applications, analysis, and interface to increase security, flexibility, and expandability. It's released under the GPL. Hmm. I've seen similar efforts like this, uh, like a Apache had mod security and then somebody built something similar for Nginx and Varnish. Uh, but doing it at this level is definitely interesting. I agree. So it's pretty cool. Uh, so the big thing out. is basically it would uh, intercept any SQL injection attempts and block them. Uh, and then you know the log from that could help you find it uh, if, if it was actually vulnerable in your app and fix it. Yeah. Although, uh, this program wouldn't tell the difference. It would just see anything that looked like an SQL injection and block it, whether or not it would have actually hurt your app. Oh, still but nice, still, though. Yeah. Very interesting thing. Yeah. And uh, support for 
PHP, Perl, and Python. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. You guys can check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Thank you for sending that in. Thanks to everybody sending in their feedbacks and their questions. We want more of them. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, send in your security, your network, uh, your performance, your storage, your infrastructure, you name it. Mm-hmm. We'd love to answer it. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com to send it directly or techsnap.reddit.com to let the community answer as well. And with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, so that crazy music means other roundup stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our intelligence subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. I think our first story might have. The ex-NSA boss, my good friend and pal, says that ending encryption is a terrible idea. The only smart and rational thing this man has said in the last decade... You might be familiar with him. His name is General Michael Hayden. He was the guy that was in charge when the NSA spying program turned on back in the Bush administration. And he thinks that in balance, end-to-end encryption is a good thing for America. Yeah. It's kind of important for, you know, economies. Yeah, and being able to trust online transactions and and who you interact with. Yes, very much, very much. I just thought that was interesting that uh, Hayden is saying that because he's sort of coming out uh, the... Uh, official uh, official line and sort of knocking it down. He says, "I know encryption represents a particular challenge for the FBI, but on balance, I actually think it creates greater security for the American for the American nation and the alternative than the alternative does, which is a backdoor." So he's he's talking specifically about backdoors, which the FBI has been all over recently. So I say that's pretty cool. Yep. Okay, our next roundup story comes from uh, Google uh, Code. Yes. So uh, Google security research team found a flaw in Trend Micro's virus scanner. Uh, when you install Trend Micro Antivirus, it also installs a default component called Password Manager, uh, which is a Node.js application that sits there listening on a port, and you can connect to it and use this API to run random commands on your computer. Why? Why is it called Password? What the hell? So there's a Password Manager built into the antivirus And that's program. just how they do it? That's just how yeah. it works? And, and their Node.js is incorrectly listening on RPC ports it doesn't say whether it's localhost only or if it's exposed to the internet, uh, but and you know most people are behind NAT or whatever. But it definitely means somebody on your computer or possibly someone on your local LAN can uh, cause you to run random things. The very software that's supposed to keep you safe and secure yeah, is huge. Yeah, well, Google's kind of on a, a trend with these. I don't know if you saw. I've noticed. Yeah, <laughs> they're just basically. I think every antivirus vendor they found a problem so far. Surprise, surprise. Microsoft has something for us, too. A security bowl in MS-16-007. Uh, an update that uh, to Windows address book... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Windows uh, remote code execution. I thought I said address book remote code execution. I still started losing it. <laughs> yeah. But oh. they basically have this nice big table down there. It shows different versions, whether they're affected by each different thing. Jeez Although, Louise. because it cascades, it kind of seems like this table is just silly. Yeah. it's oh, It's unusable. It's so big. Well, no, but like, notice how it'll say a version. If you scroll back up a little bit, uh-huh. uh, notice how it says there that like uh, Windows 8.132 bit is vulnerable to this one and not uh, Windows 8.132 bit system. I don't actually see what the difference is between those. But then, so if you see one that's in the very first column, yeah. Then the next one down, it'll be vulnerable in the next column over. The next one down, the next column. Yeah, over. that's weird. You're right. It I see that. Goes down on this slant. That's weird. Yeah. So. 
it just seems like they could have worded the table differently to make it. It's like extra confusing. Have, well, they made, they made it so they could fill the table with not vulnerable. Right? If they had yeah. just formatted the table differently, yeah. it would have been all vulnerable, showing what's vulnerable where. Instead, you're right. they it showing how your your version of Windows is not vulnerable to almost everything except for things. It's just silly. Was this page helpful? No. Yeah. There we go. I'm going to say I'm, 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 the table was retarded. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Next story. IRS has something for you. Identity theft protection is a tax deductible benefit, even yes. without a breach. Hey, that you know what? I'll yes. take it. So this means that companies can write off the cost of paying for oh. uh, identity theft protection for all their employees or for their customers. Okay. Oh, so uh, does this mean like without this, a breach? Oh, so does this mean like so where they do have a breach like, and they give you free Experian, they get to write it off now? Yes, but also it means they can write it off to give you Experian for free now, even if they haven't had a breach. Which like, nobody's going to do. Bonus for being a some people will subscriber. Yeah, some uh, people will. will but others are going to use it just as a now. But to me, it sounds more like a write-off when you have to go give millions of people Experian coverage. Yeah. So you you basically you'll get to write off that tax. Amazing, so. amazing. That is really something. These these guys these guys don't have there's there's zero repercussions well, the funny part now. Here is that the IRS had to do the same thing themselves, right? Zero repercussions. Them, like, but, oh. but everything they do like this takes one more thing away from any repercussions when you don't properly maintain your network. And oh. yeah, so now you don't even uh, you still have to pay for the identity theft protection, but it's tax deductible. <laughs> yeah. Well. All right. Well, let's talk about a new remote Trojan that's been found. That hey, guess what? Antiviruses weren't detecting. Uh, what do you how do you say Trochilus? Is that how you think you say it? Trochilus, maybe. Like that. A cyber espionage group has been discovered using a new remote access trojan dubbed Trotris, which detection rate was very low among antivirus products. The malware was discovered by Arbor Networks. The researchers linked the companies to a sophisticated group of attackers known as Group 27, who are known to use different malware programs in their operations, some with overlapping capabilities. Arbor Networks has, un has uncovered seven malware programs used by the group so far, including Plug X, 9002, and the new Tor uh, Torchalus, I think is how you say it. Uh, when Torchalus was initially found, it had minimal or no detection from antivirus or anti-malware software at all, according to Arbor. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, so Arbor Networks makes devices that sit on the edge of your network and sniff the traffic mm -hmm. and try to find patterns like this. Hey, I got a great uh, local root exploit for Linux users. Yes, this one is great. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Linux has this thing called OverlayFS. Yeah, it, it does. It was designed for something like uh, if you have a live CD that yep. you're running off yep. of. You can use OverlayFS on top of that so that you can make changes and the changes get saved off to a different thing like a USB stick or something or even just in tempfs and RAM so yeah. that you can make changes and then they go away. When it's you fantastic. Them. Or you can save them to the USB stick and bring them back later. I now, love it. Then Linux introduced namespaces and somebody decided to hook OverlayFS up to namespaces without doing all the work that should have been done. Oh. So this means that what you can do is uh, take a binary. Uh, so you make an overlay on top of a thing, but do it in a namespace so that you, as the regular unprivileged user, now get the sysadmin privilege uh, because it's, you're inside your namespace, so that's loud. Um, and you overlay on the regular system, and uh, then you can do things like uh, set a binary as set UID root. Because on you know even though on the original one you can't change the permissions on the file because you don't own it, because on the overlay you can because you have the sysadmin privilege, you can 
fiddle with things and make something set UID root or change the permissions on something that already is set UID root and overwrite it or whatever so that you can run things and get a root shell. <laughs> so yes, Linux namespaces plus overlay fs equals a free root shell. Man, Alan, I like all overlay the, all the details in the space. I like namespaces uh, and I like overlay fs. Dang it. Yes, but they probably shouldn't have been hooked together without doing some extra work. Well, how else are you going to have Docker images that are awesome? Hello. See, so in FreeBSD, we have <laughs> jails, right? Uh, and nor, uh, in the default configuration, obviously, a user in a jail can't mount any file systems. They're restricted to the one right. they have. However, you can turn it so that they are allowed to do that. So you can allow them to do things if you want. Uh, but each file system supported by FreeBSD has a flag in the driver that says whether or not it's supported in jails. And we don't set that flag until it's all been audited and checked and we're sure that it's not going to cause this type of a problem. Uh, and then once it is, it you know it has special modes. Oh, oh, we're in a jail. Let's make sure that we don't let them do the things they're not allowed to do. Uh, and it seems like Linux namespaces maybe need to have something like this so that you can't just combine them with a file system that wasn't designed with namespaces in mind mm. uh, with the extra checks that we required. Here, you know, overlay yeah. FS assumes that if you're doing it, you're already root on the machine. And so it doesn't do checks to make sure you're not set UID rooting a file. Whereas once you put it in the namespace and let a regular user do it, there's a whole bunch of extra checks you need to start doing. That should have been obvious. Yes and no. It's not something everybody thinks about, right? You know, set UID root is one of those things that's just horribly complicated. That's a good point. You know, technology is so complicated. Maybe we're taking the wrong approach. Maybe instead of trying to do technical solutions, you should call on this witch. Motherboard, talk to a witch who casts viruses out of computers with magic. The Wiccan Witch, who is also an ordained minister through the state of California, not only offers services for people struggling with romantic heartache, depression, and other ailments, but she also exercises viruses from computers. No problem is too small, too big, or too weird, too weird is her motto. She can do a love spell, but she'd rather face off with ghosts and demons. She's used a Wiccan witchcraft to build a client base of professionals who want alternative tech support in and around the Silicon Valley. And Motherboard has a whole interview with her. Yeah. She says, when I go into the room where somebody's computer is, I go in fresh. I step in like a fresh sheet, and I'm open to feel what's going on with the computer. <laughs> Alan's skeptical face is skeptical. About what, Alan? <laughs> what could be possibly, what could be weird about? Well, I would very much like it if people paid me for me to go, your computer's fixed now. How many times have you heard, well, it was having a problem, but now that you're here, it's not happening. Just you being here must have fixed well, it. She could just be capitalizing on that because like one out of five calls I got, was had, that would happen. Oh, it was fine until you got here. I guess you touched it and fixed it. You it, just yeah. capitalize on that. You capitalize on that. So one of my original clients for something like this was a retired dentist. And he liked to say, it's like, you know, it's like when by the time you get to the dentist, you don't remember which side the toothache was on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. There's a business for everybody out there. All right. Well, a couple of more. One of the last ones here. Verizon has been routing millions of IP addresses. Uh, and I guess it has been helping cybercrime groups or they've been doing yes. it on... So basically, a cybercrime group who was paying Verizon for service for IP transit or whatever uh, was like, hey, Verizon, here's all these IP addresses we own. Please route them to our servers here in the US. And the IPs didn't belong to them. They were from like Korean and Chinese ISPs. So they just stole like millions of IP addresses. Four million, I believe. Yeah. So 
basically, because spam blacklist will block an IP if it's sending too much spam, they're like, well, we'll just get 4 million IPs and only send you know one message from each one. And then we won't get on the blacklist. Uh, but yes, they stole them from... Uh, I think a couple of the companies they stole them from might actually be defunct, and so nobody noticed. Yeah. Um, but some of them might actually still be there, and if they're trying to use the IPs, the traffic will get weirdly routed. But you know, if you're spammers and you're only really trying to send spam in the U.S., to servers in the U.S., then you know the U.S. is the closest route, and it's not going to miss get directed to the other route, which is in. To Man, Korea. you know, Alan, if totally illegitimate spammers can do this, then it really makes you think when like nation states well, are doing attacks or something like that. Like, there's no, there's when, just when you when you go to do something like this to route IPs that you don't own, you require a an LOA or letter of authorization from the real owner of the IP addresses. Yeah, to, to do it, and Verizon apparently just didn't bother doing any of those <laughs> surprise. Uh, although Mother or uh, Sam House has had trouble getting in touch with the companies in Korea, probably because they don't speak Korean, uh, and that you know some of these are kind of old allocations and so on. But yeah, Verizon is not really helping at all, and basically they failed to do their job. Now the <laughs> fact that the internet relies on them to actually check a bunch of people. Well, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm sure with, all they had to do was give Verizon a, a nice letter on letterhead and say, yeah, here's a letter saying that they say it's totally fine. And Verizon, okay, well, you got it on letterhead. And yeah. Then, yeah. But it sounds like Verizon maybe didn't even do that much work. Yeah, maybe not. I, I love this last story. I'd love to see more of this, actually. I'm not a huge fan of people getting fined, but maybe this is finally worth it. FT the FTC is fining software vendors over false data encryption claims. Yeah, so this uh, small company... Uh, called Henry Software or something like that, uh, was even after being warned by CERT, the Computer Emergency Response Team, that their uh, CRM software for dentists didn't meet HIPAA compliances and that the encryption it claimed to have was no good, continued to sell it. And so the FTC fined them uh, $250,000 for the false claims because obviously the dentists are paying for this thinking it's HIPAA compliant. That's and that that's the why they got the fine. Yeah. You're starting messing with HIPAA, yeah. Well, more importantly, just any false advertising is the FTC's ground, right? It, yeah, that's it wasn't, true. It'd be a different entity if it was mostly. No, I, I just mean that if you know you start going to that, that's going to be that's going to show up on somebody's yeah. radar. That's a yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't know who would be the agency to do HIPAA, even though I had to work with lots of clients that had to follow HIPAA. I don't actually know who would come a knocking. I don't know. Yeah. Hey, Alan, uh, so I wanted to mention something special that we've never really done before that we're doing next week on the TechSnap program. Mm -hmm. Alan and I are traveling, and so we decided that we would try a best of feedback. One of the things that uh, both of us have, I don't think we ever really expected it to work out the way it has, but the feedback has become a big part of the show, great questions, and it's sort of informed a lot of the show. So next week, we're going to highlight some of the best feedback questions and some common answers and common questions that we give out on the show that probably a lot of you watching might have and would find interesting, even if it's not a direct question you have. So we're going to try it, see how see how that works while we're traveling next week. We'd love to get your feedback on it at techsnap.reddit.com. And it also means we need more feedback. So go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send your feedback in. So we won't be live next week because we're traveling. But typically, we are live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. That's right. You can find it at jblive.tv or jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Also, just like there's going to be a TechSnap program next week, there will also be a BSD Now program. A whole new episode, though, right? 
Mm-hmm. With yes, a, we have an interview with John Baldwin uh, from the FreeBSD project. We talk about interesting things, including the implications of the v- GPL v3 uh, to continue to support g- uh, modern GCC for compiling platforms like ARM and MIPS, where the Clang support maybe isn't quite there, or just people that want to use GCC. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but I, I well, bet that is a bit of an uh, issue. So, yeah, so in FreeBSD, we have a policy of no GPL v3 in the door recently. Right. Yeah. Uh, and But that means the version of GCC we have is the last one under the GPL v2, which is yeah. like 4.2 or something. It's really old. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a way to kind of maybe soften that stance slightly while still being able to offer any customer that wants it a completely GPL v3 free experience. But for people that want it, the ability to easily use it. Uh, in particular, because it would require some patches to GCC to make it work the way we liked it to work, um, we don't want to maintain those in ports because then it's hard to keep it with the different versions mm. of FreeBSD. And so mm-hmm. it would just be a mess. It's so, kind of a hard spot. Uh, nothing's been decided yet, but we have a good talk about that, uh, about uh, Beehive, Hibernation, laptops. Really? All, we, it's like 50 minutes of all over he the He works board. on Beehive too? Uh, he's done some work on it. Mostly, as an early user of it, he had things he wanted it to do, and so yeah. he made it do them. Speaking like, of uh, BSD, where are you at right now while we're recording this? Uh, this one, I'm still at home. Oh, okay. But so it's just me that's gone? Uh, next week, when it's the Best feedback of. show, okay. I will be at FOSDEM, the uh, European Open Source Conference in Ah, cool. Belgium. Alan, that is super cool. You should... Oh, man. I wish I could go with you. I would love to go to that and get some footage of that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, when we're doing the feedback episode, that's where you'll be at, and I'll just be getting back that week. And so, we'll, yes. yeah, we'll be, we'll be ships passing in the night, as they say, Alan. And then after all of that traveling shenanigans, we're back to our regular schedule, and uh, we'll be reading your feedback and checking your stories over at techsnap.reddit.com. Don't forget, if you're subscribed to the RSS feed, you don't really have to worry about anything we just said. It all just comes to you automatically every single week, like the TechSnap program has for 250 weeks running. So that's the nice thing about the RSS feeds is you just put TechSnap in automatic mode, and you know you're going to get something from us. Also, uh, the live stream the live stream is a, a lot of fun. So if you can be here, chat room is a great place to hang out. We'd love to see you over at jblive.tv. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 